Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Sheldon, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our March 2016 issue. You will hear transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Researchers report that the presence of latent infection with Toxoplasma gandii is associated with a history of increased aggression and a diagnosis of intermittent explosive disorder, which is a disorder of recurrent, problematic, impulsive-aggressive behavior. Toxoplasma gandii is a common protozoan parasite that persists in host tissues, including the brain, and has been associated with a history of suicidal behavior and certain psychiatric disorders. In the present study, the authors assessed circulating immunoglobulin G antibodies to Toxoplasma gandii in over 350 adult subjects with and without a DSM-5 disorder and examined them as a dimensional and categorical function of aggression. Their work was supported by the National Institute of Mental Health the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the Veterans Integrated Service Network 19, and the University of Colorado. Toxoplasma gandii seropositive status, that is, immunoglobulin G levels greater than 12 international units, was significantly associated with higher aggression and impulsivity scores. However, when both aggression and impulsivity scores were controlled for, only aggression scores were higher in seropositive subjects. In addition, Toxoplasma gandii seropositive status and marginal mean scores were significantly higher in subjects with intermittent explosive disorder compared with healthy controls. These findings were not accounted for by the presence of other syndromal or personality disorders or by states or traits related to depressed or anxious moods. The authors conclude that these data are consistent with previous studies that suggest a relationship between Toxoplasma gandii seropositive status and self-directed aggression, such as suicidal behavior. These results further add to the biological complexity of aggression from both a dimensional and a categorical perspective. This article is freely available online. Please visit the March Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Concerns about non-medical use of stimulant medications used to treat attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, are growing. Mass media often attribute the rising non-medical use of these medications to increased physician prescriptions. However, no previous study has examined temporal trends in prescriptions, non-medical use, and emergency department visits relating to these agents. In a study funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, Chen and colleagues examined the association of prescriptions, non-medical use, and emergency department visits with regard to two commonly prescribed ADHD medications, methylphenidate and dextroamphetamine amphetamines. They found an apparent increase in non-medical use of dextroamphetamine amphetamines in adults. However, prescriptions of these drugs among adults were not increased. 
Therefore, the growth of problems related to stimulant misuse may not relate simply to high prescribing. The authors note that the possibility of higher diversion rates should be considered in light of their finding that physician prescriptions were indirectly the major source of non-medically used stimulants. They call for the development of prevention strategies that target drug diversion routes as well as education about the adverse consequences of stimulant use. Deparamate is widely prescribed for the treatment of seizure disorder, for the prevention of migraine, and for weight loss. Although it is not approved to treat alcohol dependence, studies have shown that it produces heavy drinking and increases abstinent days. The medication, however, can have a number of side effects that could prevent patients from adhering to treatment. In this article, the authors conducted a risk-benefit analysis that calculated the number of patients who need to be treated with topiramate to prevent heavy drinking in one additional patient. Their work was supported by the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, and the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. The authors found that fewer patients required treatment with topiramate to achieve this beneficial effect than with naltrexone or acamprosate, two medications that are approved to treat alcohol dependence. Moreover, the advantage was greatest in the group with a particular genotype, which underscores the value of using a personalized treatment approach when selecting a medication to treat heavy drinking. Further, accounting for topiramate side effects, the findings were largely unchanged, supporting its use in treating heavy drinking. Although many drugs are approved for the treatment of major depressive disorder, or MDD, many patients don't have a satisfactory response to their initial antidepressant treatment. Caraprazine, an atypical antipsychotic, is under investigation as adjunctive therapy for patients with MDD who have inadequate response to standard antidepressant therapy. In this randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, flexible-dose study, which was supported by funding from Forest Laboratories and Gideon Richter, caraprazine was evaluated for eight weeks in adult patients with MDD who remained on their current antidepressant. Analyses were based on three groups of approximately 250 patients. One group was randomized to placebo, another to caraprazine, one to two milligrams a day, and the last to caraprazine, two to four and a half milligrams a day. The difference from placebo and total score change from baseline to week eight on the primary efficacy outcome was significantly greater with adjunctive caraprazine, two to four and a half milligrams a day, but not with caraprazine, one to two milligrams a day. In the higher-dose group, significant differences from placebo were seen at all study visits. In the lower-dose group, differences were significant only at weeks 2 and 4. These results suggest that improvement in depressive symptoms was seen over the course of caraprazine treatment. The medication was generally well-tolerated. The most common treatment emergent adverse events in the higher-dose group were akathisia, insomnia, and nausea. Insomnia, somnolence, and restlessness were most common in the lower-dose group. 
The authors conclude that caraprazine was an effective and generally well-tolerated addition to standard antidepressants in adults with MDD. This article is freely available online. Please visit the March Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Case studies have indicated that re-emerging or long-delayed PTSD symptoms may be more likely to occur in older age. A number of precipitants have been described, including age-related losses of social support, cognitive decline, and physical illness. However, population-based studies of exacerbated PTSD symptoms in older adults have not yet been conducted. In this month's CME offering, Moda and colleagues examine the prevalence and determinants of exacerbated PTSD symptoms in veterans 55 years or older who participated in the National Health and Resilience in Veterans study. This study was a contemporary, nationally representative, longitudinal cohort study with data collected in 2011 and 2013. Their work received funding through the Department of Veterans Affairs National Center for PTSD. Moda and colleagues found that nearly 10% of older veterans experienced exacerbated PTSD symptoms. In earlier analyses, the authors found that veterans with exacerbated PTSD symptoms had greater cognitive difficulties, greater exposure to recent traumas, a higher level of loneliness, and less social support than trauma-exposed veterans with no or low-level PTSD symptoms. In a more stringent analysis, the only variable that remained associated with exacerbated PTSD symptoms was greater cognitive difficulties at baseline, particularly problems with executive functioning such as concentration and problem-solving. The authors conclude that their findings underscore the importance of assessing for PTSD symptoms among trauma-exposed older veterans presenting with cognitive decline, even if they have never previously shown symptoms or have not done so for some time. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the March Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Both addiction in general and opioid addiction in particular are often conceptualized as behavioral strategies for avoiding negative experiences. Sigmund Freud contended that intoxicating substances keep misery away and serve as a refuge from life's troubles. In rodents, opioid intake has been associated with abnormal acquisition and extinction of avoidance behavior. In the present study of 27 adults meeting dsm four criteria for heroin dependence and 26 healthy controls, the authors used a simple computer-based task to test the hypothesis that these findings would generalize to human opioid-dependent subjects. Indeed, results suggest that opioid addicts exhibit greater acquisition and impaired extinction of the avoidance behavior compared to healthy controls. Results also suggest that these behavioral differences might be specific to male subjects. Interestingly, these differences could not be easily explained by impaired task performance or by exaggerated motor activity in male patients. This study is the first to demonstrate an objective assessment of avoidance behavior in addicts 
and suggests that greater avoidance might contribute to the development and persistence of opioid addiction. Future work should investigate these findings and test whether therapeutic interventions that decrease avoidance behavior are beneficial for addicts who demonstrate abnormal avoidance patterns. This study was partially supported by the National Science Foundation and National Institutes of Health Collaborative Research in Computational Neuroscience Program by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism and by the Stress and Motivated Behavior Institute of the New Jersey Medical School. Alzheimer's disease is usually considered to be dementia that occurs most commonly in the elderly. Growing evidence suggests, however, that the brain changes typical of Alzheimer's disease start many years, if not decades, before dementia is seen. This conclusion is based mostly on studies of persons just before dementia is diagnosed or in persons who are at risk of developing dementia, such as the children of patients. In an observational study sponsored by both pharmaceutical companies and public funding, researchers used information collected at baseline in more than 9,000 people who were then followed for 10 years. These data show that for persons with Alzheimer's disease, changes in the brain are already evident up to 10 years before diagnosis. At this early time, these individuals experience increasing difficulty with memory and language tasks and are likely to be feeling depressed. These results help attain the goal of using this information to detect Alzheimer's disease before dementia sets in and to begin treating dementia much earlier. Cognitive deficits have been identified as a core feature of schizophrenia. Many genes associated with the dopamine and norepinephrine systems are related to these cognitive deficits. Dopamine beta-hydroxylase is a key enzyme that converts dopamine to norepinephrine and whose activity and levels are under strong genetic control. In this study sponsored by two Chinese science foundations, researchers examined whether the D-beta-H5 prime insertion-deletion polymorphism influenced cognition in chronic schizophrenia. Subjects with this polymorphism were studied in a case-control design. 700 patients had chronic schizophrenia and 500 were healthy controls. The authors found that the D-beta-H5 prime insertion-deletion polymorphism may not play a role in susceptibility for patients with chronic schizophrenia. However, patients with chronic schizophrenia had more significant cognitive impairments than did the healthy controls in all cognitive domains except for the visual-spatial-constructual domain. Moreover, the authors found that D-beta-H5 prime insertion-deletion polymorphism might play a role in attention impairment in patients with chronic schizophrenia. Little research has addressed patient treatment preference in post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. In this article, the authors conducted a randomized clinical trial that compared three PTSD therapy types prolonged exposure, relaxation therapy, and interpersonal psychotherapy. 
Reporting on the treatment preferences of 110 patients, the authors explored preference correlates and assessed effects on treatment outcome. This study was sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health. Before randomization, patients received balanced, scripted psychotherapy descriptions to which they indicated their preferences. Analyses assessed relationships of treatment attitudes to demographic and clinical factors. Study results showed that 26% of patients preferred prolonged exposure, 26% preferred relaxation therapy, and 50% preferred interpersonal psychotherapy. Conversely, 26% of patients were disinclined to prolonged exposure, 16% were disinclined to relaxation therapy, and 3% were disinclined to interpersonal psychotherapy. Patient preference marginally affected psychotherapy outcome. Depression negatively moderated the outcome of patients assigned to treatment they did not prefer. The authors conclude that future research should test replication of these findings in different populations and with more polished methods. The use of stimulants is increasing in South America, and crack cocaine is one of the most common forms used with terrible health, economic, and social consequences. Currently, there are no FDA-approved medications to treat cocaine addiction. In this study, supported through funding from the Brazilian government, subjects with cocaine dependence that used only crack cocaine participated in treatment in a drug addiction facility that included motivational interview, group therapy, and the use of medications. Thirty men received topiramate, an anticonvulsant with possible properties for addiction. Thirty other subjects received placebo. After 12 weeks, subjects using topiramate reduced quantity and frequency use of crack cocaine. They spent less money and had eight times greater chance to be free of the drug. Future research with larger samples is needed to confirm these data, but the results suggest that topiramate is promising for the treatment of cocaine dependence. Trainee psychiatrists are taught that males and young people with schizophrenia have worse outcomes, but the evidence is inconsistent. Few studies distinguish whether poor outcome arises because males and young patients have worse symptoms from first presentation or because their illness progresses differently as it unfolds in the years after presentation. Whether gender and age predict illness course matters. First, Suppose gender and age only predict presentation in schizophrenia. In that case, clinicians assessing someone at first presentation should base their prognosis on symptoms alone, ignoring age and gender. Second, gender and age distinction in schizophrenia tell us something about etiology. If, for instance, symptoms progress differently in younger females, a continuing process like the effect of estrogen is implied. To examine these predictors of illness course, researchers combined two samples drawn from consecutive first presentations of non-effective psychosis from services in Canada and the United Kingdom. Study support was provided by the UK Medical Research Council and the Stanley Medical Research Institute. Exploratory analysis of almost 630 patients suggested underlying peaks in presentation 
in either their early 20s or their late 40s for both males and females. However, a larger proportion of males had young onset. Male gender and younger age did indeed independently predict worse negative, cognitive disorganized, and hostile, excited symptoms at presentation. Nonetheless, after adjusting for confounders, including symptoms at presentation, gender and age did not further predict illness progress. Negative symptoms at presentation persisted for everyone. This finding underlines the value of early intervention and prevention of severe negative symptoms at first episode for all patients with schizophrenia, regardless of age and gender. People with serious mental illness have a life expectancy of up to 25 years shorter than those without mental illness, primarily due to cardiovascular disease. This mortality gap has increased because of disproportionately high rates of tobacco use and obesity. In a study supported by the National Institute on Drug Abuse and Pfizer, Thorndike and colleagues assessed whether the metabolic effects of weight gain after quitting smoking lessened the cardiovascular benefit of quitting. The study sample was made up of outpatients with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, or bipolar disorder who completed a trial of Varanaclene for sustained tobacco abstinence. A 12-week open-label phase was followed by a 40-week randomized placebo-controlled phase in the participants who achieved 12-week abstinence. Of the 65 participants who completed one-year follow-up, 33 had quit smoking and 32 had relapsed back to smoking. The abstinent participants were older and had higher baseline Framingham cardiovascular risk scores. By one-year follow-up, the participants who had stopped smoking gained 4.8 kilograms compared to the relapsed participants who gained only 1.2 kilograms. The abstinent participants had a significant reduction of 7.6% in the mean Framingham risk score, whereas relapsed participants had no change. The authors conclude that quitting smoking substantially reduced 10-year cardiovascular risk, but also contributed to significant weight gain. Their findings highlight the need for clinicians to make the treatment of tobacco use and obesity a priority in patients with serious mental illness. Antidepressant non-adherence is common and represents a potentially modifiable risk factor for treatment non-response. In the present study, researchers used a novel approach based on discarded blood samples from routine blood draws to assess treatment non-adherence in a clinical cohort. Individuals who were prescribed sertraline, citalopram, bupropion, or venlafaxine in January 2014 were identified through the electronic health records of two academic medical centers. Discarded blood samples for 109 individuals with 14 to 90 days of treatment initiation were anonymized and then assessed for detectable serum antidepressant levels. Overall, 17% of samples lacked detectable levels of the index antidepressant, a finding that suggests an opportunity to improve depression treatment outcomes by addressing such non-adherence.
Many studies suggest that prenatal exposure to acetaminophen increases the risk of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in the offspring during childhood. However, fever during pregnancy may itself be associated with adverse gestational outcomes. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade looks at the existing data in order to weigh the risks. The full text of this column is freely available online. Please visit the March Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight two educational activities. In our first CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Decatur, U.S. Regent, and Lundbeck, you can follow the case of Mrs. C., a 38-year-old primary care patient with depression who doesn't respond well to initial antidepressant treatment. See how measurement-based care helps her clinician confirm her diagnosis, track symptom response, and assess her quality of life. Antidepressants, including SSRIs, may alleviate depressive symptoms but leave residual symptoms. Explore our second CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Forest Laboratories, to discover the mechanism of action of antidepressants and adjunctive agents. Find out how to choose effective strategies to target particular symptoms or activate specific receptors for broader therapeutic benefits. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the March issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.